0: We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread his truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the word to resurrect among us so that heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, it is a Sunday afternoon and I'm excited to be doing this podcast with you guys. Just got out of church about an hour or two ago um, as we go to the first service. Um, at the church that we attend, and um, and I'm just I'm stoked to get into the word with you guys, and I'm encouraged by what I heard today and just what was you know what was going on today. And uh, any time that I'm you know able to get into the word, I get excited to share the word with other people. And I, I'm I've been dealing with a cold uh, or something I don't know what it was, but something that just zapped me of my energy and um, <clears throat> I lost my voice which is why I haven't really been doing a lot of the podcast this week. I threw my back out this week. I was down for like three or four days, and I was sick, and just it was a miserable week, but I'm excited to kind of be being on the tail end of that, joining in with you guys, hoping to hear from you guys about how this message might edify you, encourage you, bless you, convict you, challenge you, spur you on to love and good works, whatever those, that might entail for you. We have got two more chapters left in our journey through the book of Luke that are going to be kind of lengthy chapters, at least for a while we've got several coming up on the heels of this one that are in the thirties. So these next two are in the fifties. So again, as I've been doing on some of these longer ones, unless the Lord redirects it midstream, I am just kind of taking this of giving you breadcrumbs to you to chew on and and take you hopefully on your journey towards truth as you seek, or as we're even going to find as you ask, seek, and knock. um, God will open the door to you. I'm giving you breadcrumbs to kind of help direct you on the right path. I'm not going to unveil everything because I just don't have an hour and a half time limit to do this and make it manageable. So we're going to break it up into smaller segments, give you some breadcrumbs to get through the entire chapter. Occasionally I'm going to be taking a drink of water because my throat, as you can probably hear, is still not fully healed, and so by the time of getting known this chapter, my throat will probably be spent. So we're going to get right into this one. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke eleven. Verse one. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, "Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples." And I, I, I absolutely love this because here's the deal: is, they waited till he was done. And I'm sure it's because of the respect, the reverence of, of making sure that we wait, we acknowledge that that prayer, that individual prayer time Jesus was having with the Father was a, a reverential and an awe-inspiring time. And what is such so for the disciples that they, they got done watching Jesus and listening to Him pray, as they had probably done many times, and finally they just came out and they just asked Him, Lord, teach us to pray like that. Like we, we pray, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like or sound like that. And I'm reminded of this guy named John Praying Hyde. That was the nickname that was given to him because the dude was always praying. Literally, uh, towards the end of his life, his heart shifted cavities in his chest. He went to the doctor, and the doctor was like, What have you been doing, man? You have been placing a burden on this heart that's literally caused it to shift in your chest. And you're going to have to stop it. And I'm paraphrasing the account, but essentially it went something like this. John and Hyde looked at the guy, and he was like, I have that burden on my life through prayer. And I'm not going to um, give up that burden just simply to ease myself of some pain. This was a guy at revivals that while everybody else was out in the auditorium or the stage and and they were, you know, out front center, this was a guy that would, his whole job at revivals, they would bring him in solely to pray during these week-long, two-week-long revivals where all he did was just pray. And There was this one moment, this one encounter in which this young Christian who was pretty young in the faith he, it was just him and John that were going in to go have a prayer time because somebody had come in for that revival and they said hey uh, we need people to pray and that, those, John and this young guy were there there's only two that was there so they, John said let's pray so they go and he says they spend like the first five minutes in silence and he said it was kind of awkward because he's he's like sitting in there and he had heard of John's reputation and, and He's just sitting there for like five minutes and nothing is being said. And he's starting to get kind of like, this is awkward. And then he said, just all of a sudden, something filled the room. I mean, it was just like this, this holy reverence of something. It filled the room. And John, kind of with a smirk on his face, he began to pray. And he said, it was, I have never felt. This is his own personal testimony. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the, the account of it right in front of me. But he's, he was like, I've never sensed the presence of God more in my life than I did in that moment when John Hyde began to pray. And I can see that with Jesus, about how his disciples had probably heard him and watched him. And finally they just said, Jesus, teach us how to pray like that. And he goes on, he says, and he said to them, when you pray say this is going to not be a blueprint in the sense of verbatim word for word it's not bad to say these things but jesus is giving them more of a blueprint because we've seen prayers in acts chapter 4 various accounts in the new testament that doesn't have any of this in it but it's a blueprint and i'm going to break that down for you in just a second he says this father hallowed be your name your kingdom come give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not to temptation. Now, you might be more familiar with the King James Version, the full version of it, which there's even a footnote here that says that some manuscripts include that. And where it says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever. Amen. Here's Here's the breakdown. One. It's giving acknowledgement to God as who he is. Hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy among all the other names that are out there. All these other false gods that are out there. These lowercase g gods that are out May your name, your name be kept holy and mighty and supreme. May you get everything that you deserve. For worthy is your name. It's giving God credit. In the very beginning, giving God the glory that is due His name as they opening up. And, and I think this is kind of the blueprint Jesus is getting at. Don't don't just go just with your needs. I mean, recognize who you're talking to. And as Ecclesiastes talks on where it says, you better make sure when you go to the throne of God, you better guard your words. You better make sure that your, <laughs> your words are few, right? The concept is, is when you go to God, He's not just some, you know some friend that you're going to as you can just kind of unload all of your concerns and unload all your things as if he's just some equal to you. And this is God Almighty. You go with reverence and a trembling fear even as to who he is. And you give the glory to his name because you understand who you're talking to. The next thing is you you, you can make your request then known to him. As he, as he says, um, give us each day our daily bread. He says, God, just as Solomon prayed, I think it was in Proverbs chapter 5 or 6, I think, where he talked about it. uh, Maybe it was 8, somewhere in Proverbs. It is written, as as the author of Hebrews would say. um, Where Solomon is just saying, look, Lord, I'm asking you, please, don't give me more than what I need. Lest I forget about who you are. And you are my provision. And don't forget to give me my daily bread lest I I feel the need to go out and steal to provide for myself. And I paraphrase that. I I butchered it probably even, but that's the the premise of what he's stating. And Jesus is saying, look here, just God, let me be content with my daily bread and let me just trust you for the provisional needs that I'm going to need for my daily bread and trust you in it all. And he goes on and he says, look, and, and here's the deal. As we forgive will be forgiven forgiveness and unforgiveness is a huge thing when it comes to answered prayers if you've got bitterness or unforgiveness towards somebody don't expect your prayers to be answered unless it's something to deal with that sin that immediate sin because until you deal with that you won't have answered prayers and you might think well that that makes it seem like it's a work-based thing like it depends on me um that's not what i'm saying that's what the word of god is saying Like literally Jesus is just saying this here. And I can give you other proof texts in 1 Peter chapter 4. I think it's in verse 7. Um, You can look in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 7. Where he says, husbands, honor your wives as the weaker vessels for the sake of your prayers. He says, if you're not honoring your wife. If you're not showing her that she has value to you as the helpmate that God has has, um, blessed you with in union. Then your prayers will be hindered. He talks about if you don't exercise self-control in 1 Peter chapter 4, your prayers are hindered. In John chapter 15, he says, if you're not honoring the church, God's beloved, the betrothed of Christ, if you're not honoring her as what she is worthy of honor, then you won't receive anything from God. If you're double-minded, you won't receive anything from God. James chapter 1. So, yes. It is a work based thing. If you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, God will um hear your prayer, but he won't acknowledge your prayer. Nothing has changed from Second Chronicles seven um when he talks about it in verse fourteen, when he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and and, and uh, turn from their wickedness, turn from their sin, he says, Then I will hear from heaven. Right? There's a if and a then attached to prayer. Don't think that your prayers will be answered. I'm not saying you have to have everything figured out and that you gotta be perfect before you can pray to God. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that you need to be perfectly aligning yourself with His will. There's a big difference between those two. And for your prayers to be acknowledged and answered before God, you gotta make sure your life is in order. And that your aim and your heart is in order. So it goes on, he says, lead us not temptation. Let me just say real quick, for one, this is a corporate prayer, this isn't just Jesus saying hey hey, guys, here's how I pray, Father hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give me each day my daily bread and forgive me my sins for I uh, for I forgive others who are indebted to me no, everything is corporately, he says this is how you ought to pray as a body and I think that that's a paramount observation that we need to recognize, one of the other things is, is that um, God will absolutely lead us into temptation he himself will not tempt us, for it's impossible for God to be tempted with sin, and he himself tempts no one. God is not the one who tempts. He is not the tempter, But he will lead us into temptation, and that's proof in uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, when it says Jesus went into the wilderness called by the Spirit. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. God will allow temptation into your life. The Word even says that God tests the hearts of the righteous, How do you think he's going to do that? He's going to bring choice. And that's exactly what temptation is. And praise God that Jesus gave the example of somebody who is made like us in every single way, Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 says. And that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. He even suffered in this temptation. If Jesus, I had a guy tell me one time that Jesus actually couldn't have sinned. I was like, really? He couldn't have sinned? Then how is he tempted? How how did he suffer in his temptation? Because if there was no actual temptation, as the Word of God says Jesus had, if there was no choice that was available to him one way or the other, good or evil, then how is it that he couldn't have sinned? Because the reality is is that in Hebrews chapter 2 and 4, it says that he was tempted in every way like us, and he even suffered in his temptation, So how is it that he couldn't have sinned if he was tempted unto sin? Hopefully you're following me on that one. This is not going to be a main topic that I'm going to talk about, but I'm giving you a breadcrumb right there. We're going to keep going. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him? Now this is still in conjunction with teaching them how to pray. Okay? And I think this is an invaluable lesson that we all need to learn. It's one of my favorite passages to go over in terms of prayer. He says, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he was his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now that word for impudence is, is a word, um, anodeia, I, I don't know how to say it, Anadeia. And it means impers- I'm, I'm sorry, a persistence uh, or importur- importunity is what the King James would use as. It means it's a persistence, it's a diligence, a steadfastness, a continuance in something. and it comes from a, a root word of it that means to have a reverence or a respect or even to be shamefaced. It's a realizing or recognition that you don't have what you need to give to your friend. It's not in your pockets, as Eric Ludy would say. You don't have it. And yet the theme of this whole thing is is that you have access to it. You don't have it in and of your own strength and power and ability. But what your friend needs, those three loaves that you don't have, the master does. The master has it. And so you realizing in your humility that I don't have what this person needs. But I know the one who does. And I'm going to knock on his door and ask him and seek it out until he answers me on behalf of my friend. So that my friend can be satisfied. It's called intercessory prayer. Let's keep going and see what he says. It says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given. You seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Let me just ask you real quick, how many times have you felt like you've maybe knocked on that door or you've sought after something in prayer, you've asked God for something and it just didn't happen right away and you felt like God failed you? I, I, I can acknowledge, I feel like I've been there sometimes, but this isn't a random, just ask him one time, seek it, knock on it once. And this is, all three of these are verbs that require persistence. Because he said, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him what he needs. You see, when Elijah went down on his knees to pray, back with Ahab. And uh, it hadn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. And it got time where um, Elijah said that it's going to rain. So he gets down he starts praying. And he gets down on his knees and... And this righteous man, he prays and he asks his servant after praying to go and to go check the the skyline to see if there's rain coming. servant comes back and says, no, no master, there's nothing. He says, okay, let me do it again. He prays seven times. He prays fervently to the Lord and each time asks for his servant to go check the skyline for rain. And finally on that seventh time. He sees this cloud the size of a man's hand off in the distance. And he says, you better go tell Ahab to take shelter because it's coming. And he stands up and he runs and they go into a cave. They take shelter because the storm was coming after three and a half years. And Elijah didn't just pray one time. It took him seven times for God to acknowledge him. This was a righteous man. This was somebody who was a prophet of the Lord. And he prays, and finally the rain comes. I want to just ask: how many times have you guys prayed for something and it didn't happen? Let me just say, oftentimes it's the moment we give up that things were about to change. And it's God's um, training us to not give up and to stay persistent in asking and seeking and knocking, which are all verbs. They're all things that we have to continually do. Now this is what he goes on to say, because he's going to show us exactly what it is that people who come to us need. It's not money. It's not, uh, I mean, those are physical um, things that can be provided for people sometimes, you know, as a way to witness to the gospel. As Jesus provided bread for people, he provided, you know, fish and bread, and he turned water into wine, and he healed people, He um, you know, cast out demons out of people. I mean, did all kinds of physical types things, but I want you to know the source of what all those things are, of every good gift that comes from God is given to us through a medium between us and the Father. And listen to what he says. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The concept here is not that God's going to give you good gifts in this life so that you can just kind of live it up, as I've heard some people try to use the concept of good gifts. The concept here is that God will give you giftings and empowerments and the grace of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of heaven within a vessel on earth to give to people what they truly need. It might be a fitting word spoken to somebody of truth. It might, be the, it might be something like the ability to speak in tongues, to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in other ways impossible possible manner. It might be the distinguishing between spirits. This is all listed in 1 Corinthians 12. It might be wisdom. That as you um, seek under every rock and you ask and you knock under, you know, at every door of, of the word of God and you're seeking, God will give you wisdom. But if you're not, if you're just trying to be one of those that reads a chapter a day, God's not going to give you a whole lot of wisdom because you're not giving a whole lot of your time. God's going to apportion you according to what you apportion to him. That's just how this works. And if you're only going to give God a 10 minute, 15 minute daily devotional, then he's probably going to give you just a smidgen of the wisdom that he has. I want you to really think and contemplate on that because that's just the reality of, of this life we live in Christ. You have to prove yourself faithful and trustworthy for Him to give you greater things. That's a concept in Luke that we've already gone over. Actually, no, I, I think we've yet to gone over that. Go over that one, but it's coming soon. The reality is, guys. This concept of ask and seek and knock is one in which you must continually do those things. The word for seek is a word zeteo that, that simply means to seek as if in order to find. And let me give you an illustration. If, if I was playing hide and go seek with my kids and my kids went out into the backyard and they went to go hide and I was the seeker I was the one that was supposed to go try to find them and I I was like ready or not here I come and I step out on the back porch and and I stick my hand up over my eyes and I'm looking out there to shield the sunlight and I'm just looking from the back porch and I'm like well I'm looking but I don't see nothing I guess I might as well just go inside I'm not much of a seeker am I no a seeker is one who's going to go out there and he's going to look under everything to try to find what he's after And in the same way, that's how we need to be with the Word of God. If you're just somebody who's reading a chapter a day, then you're going to find a little bit of God's wisdom. But you're not going to find a whole lot. And you're going to have a whole lot of the pieces of the puzzle of God's truth missing from your life. And your doctrine will be inconsistent. And I see that with a lot of people. I see that with a lot of pastors today who they just don't have time to study the Word. So they study what they can, maybe 20, 30 minutes a day, and they try to spend a little bit of time, but they're so busy out being a Martha that they actually haven't chosen the greater portion of being with Jesus at His feet and learning from Him before they actually get into that pulpit and start trying to teach. And thus their doctrines are inconsistent because they haven't turned over all the pieces to the puzzle and let the Holy Spirit put them into place for them. And one of the things that unlocks this is prayer. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach them. So because I don't have a ton of time, we're going to keep going because we're only 13 verses into this. He says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he knowing their thoughts said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Now Jesus is referencing here this uh, accusation that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. So uh, as being the son of God, he's also somehow aligned with the prince of demons, and, and he's both of them at work in the same individual. And he says, okay, if that was the case, it would fall. This house would fall. There would be confusion and chaos and be disorder and everything that that would run wickedly. Let me just ask you, is it any different with the house that is divided between the flesh and the spirit? The Bible would reference it as a two-spirited man or a dipsuchos is the Greek word. It means double-minded or two-spirited. Somebody who lives in the flesh and lives in the spirit. Let me just tell you what Jesus calls it. He calls it being lukewarm. And you will fall. You see, the concept here is that two parties that are hostile to each other cannot unite. They cannot have unity amongst one has to be greater than the other. And in the case of a Christian, the spirit must have the authority over the flesh in the throne of one's life. Do not expect for the flesh to be on your throne, but yet you get the benefits of the spirit. It doesn't work that way. And, and I say this because a lot of people would be like, well, you know, hey, I, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not very fleshly. I've been born again. I've been born in the Spirit. I'm a Christian, so how dare you call me fleshly? Well, let me just ask you this, um, you, you person who walks in the Spirit. Right, Because if it was true for every Christian and there was not even a temptation or a propensity for us to go back to walk in the flesh, then I think that some of this scripture that I'm about to read would be null and void. Listen to what he says in verse 16 of chapter um, 5 in Galatians. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you starve the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. And that's a choice that you have. You have to choose every day to walk in the Spirit. It's not something that's done for you by the mighty hand of God. It's something that's been given access to you by the mighty hand of God. And he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And so, you who would say that you don't live by the flesh, you don't have any propensity towards the flesh, you're a born again Christian. How dare you accuse me of being a fleshly Christian? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 1 through 3 that infants in Christ are still of the flesh. They're in Christ, but they're still of the flesh. They're still fleshly in their thinking, they're selfish. Are you ever selfish? Well, that's of the flesh. He says, um, sexual morality, impurity. Is there anything in your life that's impure? What about the things you watch and listen to? Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Do you ever get angry in a fleshly way? I'm not talking about in a righteous indignation. I'm talking about a fleshly anger that comes from your flesh. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do, which is the Greek word proso, it means to perform habitually, not to stumble in it, not to do occasionally, not to even fall victim to it occasionally, but to practice habitually, it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, He goes on in the list, of what happens when we, when we abide in Christ and we walk by the Spirit. These are the things that are produced in us. And listen to what he goes on to say in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. At some point in your life, you have had to say no to the flesh. You've had to say, I don't want it anymore. I want the Lord Jesus Christ to govern and rule my life. And at that moment, the Spirit gets placed on your throne. But the flesh is going to keep knocking. And you do have the um, ability to put the flesh back on the throne. That's what he says. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the concept is that Paul's saying is like, look, you've been given life through the Holy Spirit that has now come to breathe in your lungs and make you a living creature, to give you a soul, a living soul that eats, sleeps, and breathes Jesus. Don't go back to living by the old man. Put to death that old man every single day and live, put on Jesus Christ. And live in the spirit and walk by the spirit. And so the concept here is that if you're wanting to be double-minded, if you sometimes have flesh on your throne and sometimes spirits on your throne and you keep going back and forth, he says, then you will fall. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If you want to stand, then you must Keep the spirit on the throne. And I'm going to show you why that's so important here in just a second. Whether for it being a Christian or as we're going to talk about an unbeliever. He goes on, and he talks about, and he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, how, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will, be the, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And the concept here is something I have heard reference as the rule of the strong man. Okay, this rule of the strong man is, is simply this whatever sits on the throne of your life runs your life. It's not super complex. But here's the deal. I was just talking about this concept with my kids the other day. When Jesus, or the Spirit of God, sits on the throne of your life, what is stronger than Him? Anything on this earth? Anything under heaven? Is there anything that is stronger than... No, there's not. Satan himself cannot overthrow what Jesus sits on the throne of. The demons do not have authority over Jesus. So if Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and He sits on the throne of your life, governing everything that you do, then Satan can't touch you. You're safe. Your palace is good. But if you choose to sit on the throne of your life, and pay attention to me, Christian, because this is dealing with you. If you choose to say, Ah, I hear what the Word of God is telling me I need to do. But I want to do my own thing. I don't really want to do what he says I need to do. Yeah, I see that. Um, let me just tell you, you're not safe. Satan will mess with you. When you're on the throne of your own life, when you govern your choices, your actions, and your life, Satan has free reign to mess with you. Under God's supervision. Now, you might think, well, that's not what I learned in Sunday school when I was nine. Well, I'm telling you, this is what the Word of God teaches. Because the reality is, is that when you choose to walk in disobedience to God's Word, He has to discipline you. He has to show you who's boss and who's master. And show you that it's not worth it whenever you are on that throne. Just as Hebrews talks about when He says that every son whom He receives, He disciplines He says, if you're not disciplined by the Lord, then you're an illegitimate child. You're not really his. When you step out of line and you do the wrong thing, he has to discipline you. What is his rod of discipline? Oftentimes, it's letting Satan have his way with you a little bit. You don't believe me? I'm just going to encourage you to study the word because it's truth. And so I want you to understand, when you choose to violate the word of God and you choose to do your own thing, you're putting yourself on the throne and there is somebody who's stronger than you. But if you let Jesus rule your throne and you govern your life according to his word, Satan doesn't touch you. He might come after you. He might form weapons against you. He might oppress you. But there's nothing that he can do to steal, kill, and destroy anything that is of yours through Christ. So keep Jesus on the throne of your life and you don't have to worry about anything. Let's keep going. I'd love to dive in that a little bit deeper, but the reality is I don't have a chance to. I would encourage you. Maybe it's a new teaching for you. Study it out. Go look at what happened to Israel when they got off, when they got, um, put God off the throne of their life. Right when they stopped doing what God said, why don't you go see how many times they got taken into captivity, how many times they lost a battle, how many times that things didn't go right with them? Were they still God's people? Yes. But did they have to get? Did they have to get trained? Yes. Until ultimately, one day they put the Son of God on a cross, and God forsook them. Let's keep going. He says, "When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person," now he's talking about demonic possession. In which I don't believe that a Christian can be demonically possessed. I do believe they can be oppressed, but I believe that demonic possession only inhabits um, a, a, uh, a person who is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Once a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, unless you've got, um, concrete evidence through the word of God I don't care about your experiences I care about the word of God unless you have concrete evidence in the word of God that a born again Christian spirit filled believer um, can be possessed by a demon um, I'm going to continue to believe what I have through my diligent studies of the word believe that a Christian who has the spirit of God inhabiting in him cannot be possessed, controlled by a demon so I believe this is referencing, granted the new covenant hasn't even been started yet, so the spirit hasn't been given to people in the way that it is in the new covenant, but I digress. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person that passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, and as Matthew twelve forty four would say, empty. And I think that's a very key word. So here's this, this unclean spirit, this demon that has now been cast out of this earthly vessel. It goes and searches waterless places. And when it doesn't find a place to rest, it comes back to its original vessel. And it finds it swept and in order and empty. It hasn't been filled with anything. So it's still fair game. And listen to what happens when it comes, it founds the house swept and put in order. And as Matthew twelve forty four again says, empty. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is paramount to understanding that if you have ever been in a situation in which there's been demonic possession and you've been part of that deliverance, man, you better do everything as in your strength um, to be praying to God. To fill that person as they surrender their life to him as the Lord of their life. It's not enough for somebody to say, Jesus, fill me, as if they want to have a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not enough for somebody to say, Jesus, be my Savior, I let you into my heart, as if that was all that it was. No, they need to surrender their life to the governing authority of Jesus Christ over their life. That is the only way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Romans 10 and Ephesians 1 talk about. If you are in a deliverance ministry, or if you've ever been part of that, you better darn well make sure that you are praying to God and you are talking truth to that person to say, you need to fill your soul with the Holy Spirit. And here's the only possible way to do that. Surrender your life to Him as Lord. And you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. I talked about it recently on a podcast or maybe it was with my kids about a deliverance um, that I was a part of in which the guy kept saying, fill me, fill me, Jesus, fill me. But there was no surrender to him as Lord. Even the next day we were having a men's meeting that morning. And a situation came up with his work that wasn't necessarily a dire thing. It could have been put off for a couple hours and he could have attended the meeting. Instead, he called me and he said, hey, I'm not going to be able to go to the meeting to do a Bible study and pray with you guys. Um, I, I got to take care of work. I was like, well, what's the issue? And he told me what the issue was. I was like, I can't wait. And he's like, well, I mean, it could, but I'm not going to. I was like, well, then you didn't give your life to Jesus and he didn't fill you. And I'm just telling you right now. This is what I told him. I'm warning you. Your life will get worse. And he blew it off. And I said, you're, you're, you're really going to, to, after what God did for you last night, this is how you're going to repay him. And he said, I, you know, I'll talk to you later, Dwight. And I was like, okay. Well, sure enough, over the last three or four years, his life has done nothing but get worse. And I've had to kind of wipe my hands of it. The point is, is that Jesus isn't joking around. When it comes to this, it will happen, and I've seen it happen. He goes on, he says, And he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. We all know who that is. That would be Mary, his mother, right? And she's just trying to, to say, Hey, man, how great of a woman it was that got to, um, to, to birth you and to nurse you. I mean, that's what a privilege. The son of God, let's give credit to your mom, who did all these things and raised you up. That, that's, that's cool, right? And Jesus doesn't seem to acknowledge that. He says this. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, that, that almost seems kind of a slight to Mary. And I don't think that he's insulting Mary. But I do think that he's putting things into perspective for us. You know, if you know anything about Catholicism, or maybe you are Catholic, the typical belief is that Mary is, is uh, she's pretty high up there in the Catholic faith, the Catholic denomination. And I would even say that's an idolatrous viewpoint of who Mary is. I can show you quotes by popes, I can show you quotes by bishops, I can show you quotes by people all throughout the... Um, the, you know, the last thousand years of saints and popes and bishops who have all stated things such as basically paraphrased in this manner Jesus is great but you ain't getting into heaven unless you're coming through Mary and what people don't realize is that every pagan religion that's ever been out there since the institution of Nimrod in the very beginning with his Taurus or Isis um, who is the female goddess and Nimrod her son um, every Pagan denomination or religion in every form has always had a female goddess with a male child, a male infant. You'll find statues all throughout. They've all been through all time. They're different names, but the same same song and dance. And you're going to find the same thing um, with what Constantine did in the early 300s, in which he combined Christianity and paganism, Roman mythology. He combined the two to form Roman Catholicism. Catholics were not the first church. Okay, I don't know who lied to you, but that's not how it was. You can go do your research and you're going to find it. And this is not a slight to Catholics. It's a slight to Catholicism. I believe there are many Catholics who are actually Christians. They're just duped into believing things that are not actually Christian. Same as Baptists, same as Pentecostals. There's things that are out there in which I believe there's Christians in many of those denominations that claim Christ is Lord. But there's things that they believe that are wrong. That don't go in line with the word of God, but go in line solely with traditions that are passed down because of a misunderstanding of the text or a reinventing of the text which is what much of Catholicism is when you come down to things such as the Eucharist and you think such as infant baptism and purgatory and indulgences and all those things are all reinventions of something that has no founding in the word of God on many of it. But here I want you to understand something real quick. Mary is not the focus. And Jesus is is seeing this woman saying, Mary is the focus. Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast that nursed you. Hail Mary, full of grace. Blessed is thou womb. Blessed are you amongst women. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary is not the focus. God is. And as soon as you get that mixed up, you've ventured into idolatry. And you're no longer walking into something that is pleasing to God. So again, let me make this very clear. I do believe that within Catholicism, that there are Christians, people who love Jesus, but they're deceived into many things that actually go against Christ. So Catholics aren't the enemy. Catholicism is. And I'll go toe-to-toe with anyone who wants to say otherwise. Because while there's some good things that happen... I've done my research on it, and I know that there's a lot of things that are just blatant idolatry. For one, understanding or thinking that Mary was the Immaculate Conception, as I've talked to many Catholics about, in which they say Jesus couldn't couldn't have come into this world with original sin, so therefore the vessel that brings him in had to be sinless. Well, let me just tell you, Mary calls Jesus her Savior. Well, why would she need to call Jesus her personal savior if she didn't need saving from sin like everybody else? And the word of God says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that would include Mary. So if we really want to get nitty gritty and start talking the word. You're going to find that Catholicism is founded on things that are not Christian. But again, that's not to say there aren't Christians within Catholicism. He goes on, he says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So a lot of us know the story of Jonah. I'm going to try to get through these next you know, 20 or 30 verses very quickly. So bear with me on this one. I once, um, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, a pastor of a church that we were attending was giving this um, series. He was going through a series of Proverbs. And he kept calling Solomon the wisest man who had ever lived. And it bothers me because whenever people are giving glory to something else um, other than Christ, it bothers me. Same as I just talked about with Mary. When people are trying to glorify Mary and put her in equal standing as Christ, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. And when somebody is trying to say Solomon is the wisest man that ever has lived, that no one before him or after him was as wise as him, that diminishes the glory of Christ. And it bothers me. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived up until Jesus, who as 1 Corinthians 1 says is the wisdom of God. Solomon had a portion of the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And that's his whole point here. Is that the queen of the south rose up and she traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon who only had a portion of the wisdom of God. There's something greater than Solomon is here. What are you doing to search out the wisdom of Christ? Who is the wisdom of God? That's his point It says, people, you have this earthly man who's got a portion of God's wisdom that's beyond anyone who's ever lived before him. And she, at all expenses, came from the ends of the earth to seek this out. And yet you have the wisdom of God through Jesus Christ in a Bible that's sitting on your shelf and you don't read it. You don't sacrifice to know what it says. Man, this woman, she paid and sacrificed from the ends of the earth to hear what Solomon had to say. And yet, you don't flip through the pages more than just a handful of times a week to hear the wisdom of God. And you've been given access through Jesus Christ to know it. As 1 Corinthians 2 says, and go study what 1 Corinthians 2 says. Because it says, if you are in Christ, you have received the spirit of God. So that we might freely understand the things given to us by God. To know the thoughts of God. The depths of his mind has been given to you to know who are in Christ. And yet we don't turn the pages of that Bible. Because of the dust that collects upon the bind. That's pretty sad if you ask me. And the sign of Jonah that he's talking about it. Um, you know has different ideas as to what it is, but I'll tell you what I think it is. And I heard this from a guy named Eric Luddy that if you never heard of him, I would encourage you to go look him up, Eric, and then Luddy, L-U-D-Y. Um, an amazing expository uh, teacher of the word. He allows it to come to life through um, just the way that he presents it. It's just fascinating. I, I love listening to him. But he talked about this concept um, in a sermon titled The Stinky Fish, I believe is what it was called. And he went through Jonah and he, he paralleled how it points to Jesus and how it reveals Jesus even. And the sign essentially what he's saying is he said, look, you've got this this prophet who was running from God, didn't even want to teach the Ninevites. Um, who is, this was the capital of Assyria, the known power at the time. This And, and when I say the known power, I mean they were known in which... People, they would come and march onto cities, and people would willingly open up their gates and surrender to them simply because of the rumors and the legend that was um, surrounding Assyria. They were the power of the time. And Nineveh was this place's capital. They had everything they wanted in the world they had power, reputation, authority, wealth, everything. And here's this prophet who doesn't even want to preach to these people, and he goes through traveling through their streets for three days, and 120,000 people repent just simply at his word. The greatest revival we've ever seen from a man who didn't even want to give it. That doesn't make sense. Rather, there was a sign, something in which these people saw. The Assyrians in this town in Nineveh, it kind of revolved around this concept of the fish, right? Um, And there was a fish god, Dagon, probably something of that nature. And Eric Lutie was proposing, he says, I'm not saying this is what it was, but I'm proposing that there was probably some sort of a creature in their in their waters. Some sort of a giant fish that terrified them. And he talks about this concept and he says, look, I'm proposing this, but he says it makes a whole lot of sense and it actually illustrates the gospel in and through this. He says, imagine that this Jonah gets swallowed up by a great fish and this fish comes up onto the land and opens its mouth and is sitting there dead on the shore and out of this dark cave comes this man walking out and he walks fine out onto the, out onto the beach, right? And here's this fish with its mouth open, the very thing that, that they could not conquer, that they could not overcome, that they were terrified of. This man comes out walking, conquering this fish with its mouth still sitting there wide open. Does it sound familiar? Because there was this dark cave. That represents death that no man has ever been able to conquer. And one day, the gospel message that we proclaim is that there was a man who after three days conquered death. How many days was he in the, in the fish? There was this man that we proclaim who conquered death with that, that tomb with the stone rolled away sitting there still wide open. And that's what we proclaim. And that would give credence to Jonah's message of as he walked through the streets of Nineveh proclaiming repent, the people listened to him because he did something that they had never been able to do. And that was to conquer death. So he says that the sign of Jonah is that ability to conquer the greatest fear that man has ever had. And that is essentially the ability to conquer death. And so with that, I'm going to keep going on this one in verse 33. It says no one after light in a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light having no part dark it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. In short... I could just simply say that our love will direct our heart and our vision directs our steps. If your heart is fully in line with Christ and fully in love with Christ. um, I'm sorry, if, if your adoration and your love is fully in line with Christ as being the first love of your life. Then your heart will follow suit. In the same way, if your eyes are directed towards him and your gaze is on him and your aim is to please him then so will your steps be in line with that vision. So if your light is fully gazed towards Jesus Christ, then he'll always lead you in triumphal possession. He goes on while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to die with him, so he went in to recline a table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. The concept here is that these Pharisees, because of the law, they took every um, conceivable action to make sure that nothing externally unclean came into their bodies to make them unclean internally. And Jesus is saying, "Um, wait a second. That's not exactly how it's working. Yes, under the law, there was a lot of those premises there, but this is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant worked from the outside in. Cleanse the outside and the inside will be clean. The New Covenant cleanses the inside out. That's why it talks about everything is transpiring from the heart, giving us a new heart so that the external will then be clean for us. The old covenant works from the outside in. The new covenant works from the inside out. That's the distinction between the two. And here, these Pharisees were surprised that Jesus didn't wash before dinner. And he's like, you guys don't understand. It's from the inner part of the man that he's defiled. It's not what he puts into his body. It's what comes out of his heart. And that's why Jesus gave the, um, the parallel to it right before that. Is that what, whatever is going to control your heart... The light source of your light, as Proverbs will talk about, keep keep your heart with all the vigilance for out of it spring the flow of living water. The concept here is that he says, look, when you're cleansing the inside, then the outside will be clean. Take care of what you need to first on the inside before you start really looking at the outside. Because if you take care of the inside, the outside will be fine. Go look at James 4, verse 8 on that one. Again, That goes into the concept of being double-minded. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees. I'm harsh words. I'm fighting terms. Jesus is not mincing his words on this one. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and ruin every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done, meaning under the law of Moses, under the old covenant. You should have been doing these things. You should have been tithing. You should have been doing this. You should, all that stuff you should have been doing. He says, without neglecting the others, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Meaning these unmarked graves, it's a death trap and they don't even realize it's there because it's unmarked. Nobody knows it's there. There's no landmark for us to be able to see it. We're just walking over their grave and it's a death trap. And these Pharisees are leading people into it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. These, were, these weren't lawyers who knew the, the Roman law. These were lawyers who knew the law of Moses. That was their job, was to know it inside and out. And these lawyers were not representatives of criminals to take them to court and you know, have the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney. These were people who were the lawyers, meaning they understood the law of Moses. And they say, Jesus, you're insulting us also with what you're saying. Jesus wasn't afraid to insult people with truth. Are you? You think it's unloving? Let me just tell you, Jesus was perfect love in the flesh. He never sinned. So anything that he said, you can know, came from the place of love. And yet he's insulting these Pharisees in the truth that he's speaking. Don't ever let anybody seem to tell you that if, um, if you're not being kind to somebody, that you're not being loving. Sometimes the kindest thing you can say to somebody is the truth that's going to hurt. And the lawyer said, you insult us also. And Jesus said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. No, that's not what he said. Listen to what he says. Woe to you lawyers also. (laughs) I, I I can't get over this. The lawyer said, Jesus, you're insulting us. And he says, woe to you too. I don't care if truth is is insulting you if it's true. You need to repent. I'm not okay with untruths. I'm not okay with things going against truth. I'm not okay with violations of it because it violates my father. I'm not okay with that. He says, "Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers." Let me just say, the cross was a heavy burden for Jesus. Jesus, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to load people with burdens. God loads us with burdens all the time. What Jesus is saying is that it's wrong to load people with burdens that you yourself aren't willing to bear. And don't ask people to do stuff that you aren't willing to do. Don't counsel people to forgive, uh, you know, a brother when you yourself are are sitting in unforgiveness or bitterness towards somebody. And if you're going to counsel people to do something, you better make sure you're doing it yourself. If you're going to counsel people to bear the burden, you better make sure that you're doing it yourself. He says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses... And you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Jesus just essentially said, All the blood that was shed of all the prophets that were sent by God, is going to be held against this generation. Why is that? Well, let's keep reading and I'll explain it. He says, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You, you, you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying and waiting for him, lying and wait for him to catch him in something that he might say." Now let me just say, the concept that he's referencing here is that the flesh is always going to seek to kill the spirit. Then we read that in Galatians 5, he says that, the, that they're hostile to one another. The flesh is always going to kill the spirit. Untruth will always seek to kill truth. It's always going to be like that. And it always has been like that. And the part of the reason why he says that it'll be charged against this generation is exactly what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about how um, signs are being requested and, and wisdom and all this various stuff. And he says this. Um, where is it? Where is it? Let me see. If, well, I thought I knew. Where, oh, it's in chapter 2. And starting in verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. What did he just say here? He said, uh, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. The wisdom of God. The hidden wisdom of God. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You want to know why all of the blood that was shed with the prophets and the apostles, the the, the prophets of old that was going to be held against the generation is because they themselves killed the wisdom of God. That was the generation that put the wisdom of God on the cross and shed his blood And therefore, from that point forward, it will always be held against them unless they would repent and acknowledge him as Lord of their life and become a follower of Christ. This is what he's talking about in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 13, when the whole concept of of it is, is repent or perish. That's That's the whole concept of this passage is to repent or perish. He says in I'm sorry in chapter 13 not 12 I was thinking that we were on 12 in chapter 13 he talks about it. it's just repent or perish the whole concept is is that you put him on the cross and as a result your ties to God under that old covenant is no more the Jewish people have been forsaken because a new covenant is now in act a new covenant has now been established and my blood will be on their hands. Didn't Pilate say that even? He says, hey, I want to free this guy. And he says, I'm going to wash my hands of this. Not that like to changed anything. Pilate probably, I mean, I don't know where he's at right now. But my guess is he probably never gave his life to Jesus as Lord of his life. So washing his hands physically did nothing. But he said, his blood be on you. And the people cried out and said, his blood will be on us and on our children. They would have no idea what they really even just said. Because the reality is, is his blood is going to be on them for judgment, not on not for salvation. The Jewish people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, are no longer God's people. And I cannot stress that enough. There's too many heresies out there that try to proclaim that that the Jews are still God's people, as if there was another way to belong to God but through Jesus Christ. When John fourteen six says, "I'm the only way to the Father." If you are not in Christ, then you do not belong to God. The Jews, the nation of Israel, has been forsaken because its tie to God was through the old covenant. Nothing more. They have been forsaken. Luke 13, 34 through 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to, it. how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood, but you are not willing. Behold, your house is is forsaken because until they realize that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God they will not get in and as he says in preceding passage they will be sitting in the end of all things and they'll see Gentiles sitting with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they themselves on the outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth the Jews are not God's people, the church is cannot stress that enough And so the principle here is is that he's saying that it's going to be required upon you. Their blood will be on you because you sacrificed the blood of the Son of God and chose to bring it upon yourselves for judgment and not for salvation. And So, with that said, we'll get into chapter 12, hopefully tomorrow. I'll be able to get that for you guys, and um, hopefully my voice will be doing better. Thanks for hanging in this one. I know it was a lengthy one, but there's a lot of meat to it. Hope it was uh, encouraging. I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, If you have something that blessed you, if you have questions about something, you can email me, as I talked about at the very beginning of it. Um, These things will be on Facebook, Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. You can go find us there, Um, or feel free to get us on Podbean. I don't know how you found these messages But uh, you are welcome to comment on there or shoot me an email, whatever it's going to take. But I'd love to hear from you guys on this. So you all be blessed.